Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to be talking about Iran. There's been lots of Sturm and Drang about the Iranian nuclear deal and what Donald Trump was going to do to it. He's described it at various points as the worst deal in history or something along those lines and uh, threatened in his UN speech to come back to it. And now we hear from the White House that after nine months of careful deliberations, discussions with allies and with Congress, they have come up with a comprehensive strategy to deal with Iran. And to help me make sense of this strategy, what it means for the Iran nuclear deal, for Europe, for the world, I am very pleased to have two amazing experts from ECFR. We have first up uh, Ruth Citrin, who's the director of the Middle East and North Africa program, and Ellie Garamayer, who's returning to the podcast to talk to us based on her constant studies and investigations into Iran and its uh, policies towards the region, but also the intricacies of this nuclear deal and the diplomacy around it. Ellie, you've been up late listening to um, all the kind of reactions in, uh, in uh, Washington, seeing what Tillerson uh, said about the, uh, about the strategy and, and reading it carefully. Why don't you start by telling us what's in this comprehensive new strategy? Thanks, Mark. So the first headline, uh, which is unsurprising, uh, is that the Trump administration will indeed decertify um, the Iran nuclear deal. And that means that they're going to go to Congress and say that in their assessment, essentially the benefits that the United States is getting from the nuclear agreement is not proportionate uh, to the sanctions relief being offered to Iran. So in this domestic legislation process, there are different reasons for why the president can choose to actually decertify uh, the Iran nuclear deal. One has to do with whether Iran is actually violating the deal. And the administration is saying that that's not the basis. But the basis is that they don't see the deal as being in the national security interest of the United States because of a essentially other Iranian behavior, which they perceive to be destabilizing, particularly on the regional front. So the second issue of this comprehensive strategy, as they call it, is uh, to counter Iran on the regional front. Uh, And here they have brought up the issues of Iranian support for uh, militia groups and um, terrorist activities in the region, and also Iranian uh, testing of ballistic missiles. Um, So what the administration is in effect trying to do is link the lifeline of the nuclear deal um, to trying to address uh, issues that are nothing to do with Iran's nuclear program, uh, and which is an area which particularly the Europeans have been urging the United States uh, not to do. Now, in terms of uh, next steps, what's going to happen practically? This issue is now being passed on to Congress. Um, Congress is going to have a 60-day review process uh, where they can choose uh, from a couple of different options. Uh, One option is that they don't actually do anything during the 60-day review, uh, which means that the deal carries on as before. 
Now, if that happens, we actually have another uh, quite closely looming deadline uh, that can make or break the deal, which is in January, uh, which is when Trump has to waive the sanctions on Iran to fulfill the U.S. commitments under the deal. But that's a whole other ball game, which we can address at another time. A second option that Congress has is to actually go into the deal's nuts and bolts. This is an avenue which the administration has indicated is what they're going to propose to members of Congress, which is not to necessarily snap back the sanctions immediately during the 60-day review, but to integrate what they're calling trigger points uh, into the domestic legislation. Uh, For example, if Iran does X on the regional front or if Iran does Y on its ballistic missiles program, sanctions automatically snap back. This is what the administration has indicated they'd like to work with members of Congress to do, which is extremely dangerous because it essentially unilaterally changes the parameters of the nuclear deal and it leaves no space for really deliberation between the executive branch and the US Congress on what to do if Iran does indeed do X and Y. Uh, But Particularly those who are opposed to the nuclear deal from day one, they have been trying to massage the administration that this is the way forward to deal and counter Iran's activities in the regions and uh, the ballistic missiles program. Now, the third avenue that the Congress can go down, uh, which ironically would actually be of some benefit to the deal, is to take out this requirement in domestic U.S. legislation requiring Trump every 90 days to certify Iran is in compliance with the deal. We know Trump hates doing this. He's he's uh, quoted to be livid and fuming every time he has to actually come to certify this Iranian compliance. So... In this way, Congress can actually um, cut some slack to the the U.S. president to not require him to certify. And it actually means that from the European side, particularly for European companies, there's a lot more predictability because they're not dealing with a certification deadline every time. They're only going to be dealing with this issue of whether the president is going to renew sanctions or not renew sanctions. Okay. So you seem to have been following what the the strategy um, suggests, which is a myopic focus on the Iranian nuclear program to the exclusion of the regime's other malign activities. But we'll come to the other malign activities a bit later uh, after we ask Ruth what Congress is actually going to do. Which of those three options do you think? um, And and why do you think um, he's dumped it on Congress rather than actually just doing it himself? Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Ellie, for that great... um a summary of what's next. It makes sense in terms of the administration to try to take off the White House the decision regarding whether to, um, uh, beyond disavowing the deal, whether actually to upend it. And it allows, some, it allows maneuverability to Trump in the sense that he has always um, positioned himself as an unpredictable actor. You wouldn't quite know, and therefore, in his view, it gives him leverage in terms of deal-making. The unusual um, outcome from this is that Congress also isn't in, is not in a great position to, to take either option one or option two. I think the option three that Ellie laid out, which is trying to lift from the White House this very uh, problematic 90-day uh, recertification certification of the um, Iran's compliance, is probably likely. And that will sort of reduce the temperature on this whole issue. 
Number, the number two option, well, the one that Ellie says the White House is most interested in at this point, because it would allow negotiation about the other elements of Iran's behavior, is something that congressional actors are likely to take up, but it's still entirely uncertain that there is the wherewithal within the Senate especially to really push this. I mean, it's a very slim majority, a Republican majority in the Senate, uh, a 52 senator majority, and you already have at least uh, three senators or four questioning, you know, the White House's push to disavow the deal. So I think what we're in, in line for is another period of uncertainty where everyone is sort of left guessing as to what Congress will do. Probably at the end of this 60 days, you will have, um, and I, I can't really hazard a guess, but I think it's some measure of option two and uh, folding into that removing the, the burden on Trump to certify. But I, I don't think Congress is in a position to really weaken the U.S. hand in terms of its overall negotiating position, its relations with Europe, um, its relations with the other actors that signed this, the deal to simply upend the entire nuclear deal. We're, I, I do not think we're in the position of option one at this point, despite what the hawks may push for. So Ellie, if Ruth's right about what's going to happen, how will Iran react to that? Well, the Iranian officials over the last few weeks have made it very clear that they consider decertification, first of all, to be a U.S. domestic issue, uh, one that doesn't impact uh, the practical implementation of the deal. Um, so essentially to highlight their expectations that the economic integration that's been on underway with Iran continues to go forward and isn't um, harmed by this. That's clearly their number one priority. Secondly, they've made it very clear that they see the, the actual act of decertification as really undermining U.S. credibility uh, when it comes to both the nuclear deal but also other areas where before perhaps there was some room for reaching accommodation and compromise with the United States. Um, now, there's a big question mark about, um, for example, now in Iraq that we have uh, the winding down of the military operations. There's a lot of questions about what Iran's role will be in the future of Iraq and how that sits with uh, continued U.S. presence in Iraq. There's also uh, on the other side of Iran's uh, border, Afghanistan, an area where Iran has a large footprint and also the US has indicated it wants to expand its presence in Afghanistan. Now there's been a sort of silent agreement that they keep out of each other's ways. But if they don't have an accommodation presumably there'll be more military presence rather than less. I mean the reason they're going for an accommodation is to so that the US doesn't doesn't feel the need to escalate further. I'm just wondering whether we're not you know um naturally moving into the other piece of this, yeah. which is what the, U, the, the other bits of the U.S. strategy on Iran, their stance on the IRGC, um, their stance on Hezbollah, their stance... The IRGC is the Revolutionary Guard. Yes, for the Revolutionary Guard. Um, um, <laughs> and the um, Iran's regional behavior. My guess is that, as Mark notes, the situation geopolitically in, in the region doesn't change that much because of this debate over the Iran deal, the president's decision to decertify has a it sort of has an optics effect. But if it doesn't markedly change um, the implementation of the deal, 
even under that, that option two that you mentioned, Ellie, that concept that you could try to negotiate elements of it but leave the deal standing while you're doing so, then it really becomes, um, it hinges on whether the U.S. takes an actual forward-leaning stance on the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard, or on Hezbollah. And thus far, it does not look like um, the United States has the tools in its toolbox really to do that. There had been talk about the U.S. designating the whole IRGC, the, the Iran's military, uh, as a foreign terrorist organization, but now that seems to be walked back toward potentially being sanctions on individual actors. Uh, they, the U.S. rolled out on October 10th its latest stance against Hezbollah, and that was rewards for justice for two actors in the uh, external security organization or the what Islamic does that mean, rewards for justice uh, rewards for justice is we'll give you cash if you bring to justice Talal Hamia uh, or Fuad Shukar heads of the military wing and uh, operatives senior operatives in the external security organization what the US sees as its external terrorist wing now my question to you Ellie is that to me those are not market changes in the US position with respect to either Hezbollah or uh, the IRGC, and I, I wonder how that changes sort of the chess pieces on the field, uh, on the regional field, in terms of uh, Syria or other parts of the region. Okay, a couple of points. On Syria, there's, there's an irony playing out here because the, the administration says that they want to counter Iran, and yet any time that they have these uh, skirmishes with the, with the Iranian-backed forces in Syria, the U.S. seems to have um, backed away. Uh, under the Trump administration. Um, so it seems that, as, as, as Ruth said, this, this kind of forward-leaning posture is not really playing out because of the costs that that might impose um, on the U.S. The same thing with the, with the IRGC designations. Uh, a lot of people have been highlighting to the administration that actually U.S. operations in the region, particularly in Afghanistan and Iraq, are likely to be complicated by a designation of this type because, you know, as I said, there is some de facto coordination going on um, through the central governments in Afghanistan and Baghdad in terms of the anti-ISIS fight, which is being uh, prioritized here. But what I would say is, you know, and as, as you'll see from probably what Trump is going to say and what the White House has been releasing is that the, the strategy on paper, at least, uh, looks exclusively focused on containing Iran and countering Iran through a regional pushback. There seems to be zero uh, or you know very little space for any sort of a diplomatic uh, approach to any of these problems um, that the U.S. has with Iran. Now, what that means is, you know, on the on the practical front, I think that there is a there's a real risk that there can be miscalculations in the region. There's a real risk that because there isn't a diplomatic channel like the type that we had under the Obama administration with the Iranian counterparts, that miscalculations could snowball and tit for tat exchanges could actually escalate quite quickly. So think back um, to um, January uh, 2016 when U.S. sailors were captured by the. IRGC. Uh, it took a matter of hours rather than weeks or months to negotiate the release between Iran and the United States. Now, say if that were to happen under a Trump administration, I'd have real question marks about how that problem would be resolved. And I'll have and I, I have real question marks over the, you know, 
we're seeing increasingly the region in the Middle East get messier and messier. We've got now uh, another crisis on our hands with the Kurdish issue in Iraq. We've got another crisis between Qatar and Saudi Arabia. And the Trump but approach it's messier to the for Iran as well, Ellie. I mean, you know, I, I have to say, I'm not sure that I buy... Um, uh, I think there are all sorts of things which are wrong with, um, with uh, the Trump administration's approach to Iran, but... I don't see, it looks like it's purely symbolic what's being done in terms of the regional stuff. I, I got, I, it's not like Iran was super helpful to Obama. Um, you know, it's engaged in a military struggle against Saudi Arabia using proxies across the region and uh, working with the Russians and with other players and it's working out in some areas uh, its interests align with the US, such as in the fight against ISIL. In others, they're diametrically opposed to them. And I imagine that um, it will carry on playing a kind of pragmatic game of working with the US in some places, trying to get them bogged down in other places. And um, I don't see why that's going to be changed by any of this stuff. I, I, there's also one other point. I think Ellie, in Ellie's comments, she sort of, um, she brought it out, which is for the United States, there are constraints on what it can do in the region. And there's difficult choices to be made. If you, ta if you look at the Syria example and the, the, the the, the consistent reporting we have seen about the Iranians working with the regime and other militia to try to create a, a corridor from, you know, Deir, through Iraq, across Deir Ezzor, toward the regime, through the regime-held territories, toward Lebanon. In fact, it's, it, it's de facto at this point, and it, the U.S. would have to make a proactive um, decision about its own force posture in the region in order to counter it. So Elliot highlighted this difficult choice for the United States and for any president about balancing um, a strategy like this, a stance about pushing back against Iran's presence in the region and its support for militia and terrorist actors, and practically uh, taking action that would try to um, contain the Iranians and its allies on the ground. And I, I think that that, is a, that remains a difficult choice for the United States. And for me, that is one reason why you don't, you're not likely to see a major change on the ground in terms of who is positioned where. And um, there is the risk, as Ellie notes, for uh, escalation and confrontation because of a lack of a channel of communication. But I don't think we, have, we see a fundamental change in the geopolitics. And I think she's, she is um, um, elevating this point that the Iranians are going to wait and see. They're going to sort of push this back and argue that this is sort of the US undermining its own credibility as, an, as, a, as, a, as a signatory to this agreement, but that um, Iran does not need to necessarily uh, change its own posture, except if um, the US takes further action. Okay, so we've done quite a lot of a detour into the, into the region and ended our myopic focus on the nuclear deal. But I'd like to come back to this nuclear deal and the P5 plus one process. So maybe uh, the two of you could let me know what happens to the P5 plus one process, what kind of it means for Europe in particular, what scope there is for Europe to save this deal. I might um, um, turn it to Ellie and ask her to think about if, if Congress chooses that second option that you outlined, which is trying to figure out a way to fix the deal rather than upend the deal, and removes this burden on the president to certify every 90 days, where is the opening for Europe, the Europeans to push? Well, this, this whole ultimatum of fix it or nix it, um, in my view, it's a non-starter from the European position because what, what they're trying to argue is uh, addressing two aspects 
of the nuclear deal, uh, which is, uh, well, one of them is not part of the nuclear deal, in my opinion. One is the sunset clause provisions, uh, which are essentially various um, sections of the deal that expire after a particular period of time. And a second is to, you know, kind of link what's happening with the nuclear program to the ballistic missiles program. These are issues that... A, on the sunset clause provision, took months and months and months to negotiate at the time. And so there's a lack of understanding, I think, from the Trump administration about what actually one former U.S. negotiator called the Rubik's Cube of trying to come to this agreement. Once you move one side of it, Iran is going to demand something in return. And then you essentially reopen negotiations. And the Europeans have been very clear that they do not want to reopen these talks. What some countries have indicated, like France, is that they would be open if the United States confirms its full commitment to the deal, that the, that the French would be open to uh, looking at additional negotiations with Iran, uh, which would, by the way, require a quid pro quo. There needs to be a, a you know, win-win on both sides being presented here. So that's one area where the French are hoping that they can then bring the United States back into the fold of keeping the deal intact as it is, but trying to look for other avenues where they can negotiate with Iran uh, on, on these other areas of concern. Now, if Congress, for example, goes for the, uh, excuse the pun, the nuclear option to snap back the sanctions, or if, say, in January, uh, even if Congress has basically managed to salvage the deal in January, Trump comes and says, I'm not going to waive these sanctions, so essentially he walks away from the deal. Then in that case, you know, the Europeans, if they want to save the deal, if they want Iran to continue fulfilling by the nuclear commitments, need to offer some sort of a package to Iran, in my opinion, together with the Chinese, the Russians, that keeps Iran on board with the nuclear deal. And they try and essentially muddle through the next years of this administration with a deal that's essentially an E3 plus 2 deal with Iran, with the hope of either bringing back the Trump administration to the deal or to have an opening uh, under a new presidency in the US. So do you think it's a new deal to Iran that needs to be done or is it some way of, of creating a space for European companies to carry on engaging with Iran uh, in spite of American sanctions and is that even possible given the long reach of the of the dollar into the global economy? Well a area that we're exploring in an upcoming paper for ECFR is specifically this issue is looking at ways that even if US sanctions do snap back, trying to hinder or reduce or ring fence their enforcement on European companies that under European law and according to the nuclear deal are doing legitimate business with Iran. So it's an issue of whether even if on paper these sanctions return, if in practice their enforcement can be minimized and and ideally uh, completely ring-fenced against. Now, it's a completely novel exercise. It's very complex. Um, the only other close precedent that Europe has for this is what happened in the 1990s when the Clinton administration was trying to come through Europe and essentially impose sanctions from uh, the United States onto companies inside European jurisdiction. Now, what so we've seen... How we've seen mainly in those days, wasn't it? It included Iran and included Libya as well, uh, as well as Cuba. 
But now uh, we've seen over the last 20 years, sanctions policy in the US has gotten a lot smarter. Um, now um, we have a lot more integrated um, systems and um, financial networks that cross from Europe into the US. Um, and the way that companies now operate globally is much more interconnected with the US market and as you said with the US dollar which exposes them um, to US uh, regulatory provisions with the assets that they have in the United States. Um, so this this works differently to essentially the US coming into Europe and saying we're finding your companies in Europe. It's about uh, exposing their assets and blocking their access uh, to the US financial market if they're doing things that um, the US foreign policy disagrees with. So, so just to, um, to unpack that, basically the threat which the US is saying is if you break our sanctions um, and you use the dollar, then you'll be subject to a to a fine, and that can be pretty big. You know, BNP Paribas got fined um, billions of, of, of dollars, um, and so that basically means that you'd have to be making such vast amounts of money in your activities in Iran that they would counteract the threat of a fine of six, eight billion dollars. Or, or I think another another way to address the current situation we're in is. Even if we don't have a snapback of sanctions right now, what we have and what we'll discover today is we're still in a period of uncertainty. You know, Congress has 60 days. They could take a middle ground option. You're still left with President Trump potentially not, you know, waiving the sanctions in January if he doesn't like the congressional options. It moves again the ball down the road. And that uncertainty in itself creates a kind of a chill in the air. Yeah. And how do, uh, uh, should Europeans sort of react to this continued uncertainty about what the U.S., not necessarily its stance, but what its actual strategy yeah. is. So that's the question. Like, is there a way of insulating the companies from this, given that companies are pretty likely to want to use the dollar and have some kind of engagement with the U.S.? Is there anything that Europe can do to make it safe to engage with Iran? Okay, let me, let me try and answer all of your questions in, in three ways. One is, um, you know, the Europeans, as a, as a priority need to try and keep the US on board with the deal uh, because it does open up a whole um, range of headaches and complexities from, you know, conflict of laws to sanctions policies, etc. So the, the hope is that you still keep the, Europe, uh, the US on board, even though it's going to be likely be a very unpredictable uh, US uh, when it comes to the nuclear deal for the next come, a few years. Secondly, even if, as Ruth says, uh, the deal survives the next couple of months, the Europeans need to essentially acknowledge that they have a far less flexible U.S. administration uh, in terms of fixing uh, some of the problems on the, on the nuclear deal implementation side, particularly to do with banking and financial issues that's already really limiting the space for European companies to do legitimate business with Iran. So Europeans need to start fixing their own problems rather than continually looking to OFAC or the U.S. administration like they did under the Obama administration to system because they're not they don't have a flexible administration on board with this thirdly i mean the two issues are are, are interlinked you know the the heart of this problem is how do you create 
alternative modes for European companies to do business with Iran while at the same time not coming under uh, unfair penalties from the US. Now, one way is you try and first focus on the smaller and middle-sized companies in Europe that have far less exposure in the US. Some of them have no exposure in the US. Now, again, these are the smaller, medium-sized European companies. They can't do the type of big foreign investments inside Iran that Iran's leaders are looking for from Europe. But what they can do is facilitate the gradual opening with Iran uh, and continue what's been happening so far. At the same time, some of the major European giants, for example, Total, who recently, even under the Trump unpredictability, has essentially uh, publicly gone to say we are going in for a uh, you know decade-long investment project with Iran and we are going to finance this ourselves in ways that don't expose us to the US. US uh, Treasury oversight. Now, it's the type of big companies like Total, Airbus, uh, perhaps some companies like BP that can take on that risk themselves and take on the exposure. But again, it's these big companies, and there's only a handful, uh, if we're realistic, that can, again, push that gradual economic opening with Iran. Unfortunately, for the majority of businesses in Europe, they will, the, the boards of these companies come under a very difficult decision about uh, the risk versus the reward for Iran. Now, what we're trying to say to European governments is, how can you try and give more assurances to these business leaders to make the decision and for that, you need to find ways to ring fence against the enforcement of sanctions. One way is political pushback. Um, obviously, that hasn't proved to be helpful with the Trump administration when you consider what's happened on the Paris Accord, what's happened with UNESCO recently, and this whole decertification process. So I think we have to now really acknowledge that European leverage politically with this administration is um, not very persuasive, to say the least. No, so I think it sounds like we need to get you back on once you finish your thing so that we can have a whole podcast just on this <laughs> sure. question. Because um, it is really, really important. I think it goes to the heart of one of the most important tools of power in the 21st century, one which the US has been using increasingly, but where Europeans have found themselves on the back foot having to respond to political decisions made elsewhere, which sometimes go completely against European foreign policy provisions. So it is a huge and really, Mark, really important let me, thing. Let me just... Yeah. Let me just round it off with two last points on that. If the political route doesn't work, there are other options open. One is to consider legal and technical pushback against these US secondary sanctions. We have a, a, a precedent from before about lodging a complaint to the World Trade Organizations against those uh, Cuba, Libya, Iran sanctions that I talked about. But there are other ways. For example, if the US is unfairly penalizing European companies, then perhaps uh, the, the Europeans need to look at how European, the US operations inside Europe are being conducted and whether there can be some technical legal pushback against um, those enforcements uh, in, in return. And again, obviously, this is a route that we hope that Europeans don't have to take because it essentially opens up potentially a trade war with the United States. But what's important to underline is that if there isn't a pushback, the US sanctions policy is only likely to grow not just on the Iran issue, but other files where European foreign policy with the US may be at odds. Okay, well, we now know 
what's going to happen um, in Congress, what Iran's going to do to respond to it, and what the options for Europe are. So thank you very much to the two of you for a fascinating discussion. We have one thing left on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Ellie, do you want to tell me what's on your bookshelf? Um, yes, I am reading at the moment The Silk Roads uh, by Peter Frankopan, which is, you know, it's a repeat of history we've, we've learned to, uh, growing up, uh, but it's just written in a very easily digestible way and also a reminder of how connected uh, the Eastern world and Africa is to, to European uh, security interests. Okay, what about you? But I, I'm in the same book. It's, it's, quite, it's quite remarkable. And I, I find it interesting because it, it takes history from an alternate, another perspective. And uh, it's, a, it's a dense read. Some argue that maybe it goes too far uh, in the direction of looking at it just in that um, East, Road, East perspective. But I, I find it refreshing to get out of the uh, point of view that we're you know, consistently in through our education. So I value it. But Ellie, I, we'll have to have a little book club when we're both done. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I started, uh, I've been reading an article in the, not a book uh, this time, but I've been reading an article in Die Zeit written by a bunch of um, German think tankers uh, who say that Germany has to stick with the United States in spite of all the craziness that's happening on the Iran deal and other topics. I think it's very interesting because it shows how deep the fears amongst uh, bien pensant, outward-looking internationalist Germans are that um, a pro-Russian instinct in the, amongst the former communists, amongst the people on the left, is going to lead the country away from its western path down towards a special Zonderweg in other issues. Um, and as a result, they don't see the fundamental tension between uh, supporting the values of the West and aligning oneself with the Trump White House. And the way they kind of try and square that circle is to say that Trump is not America and he's not going to be there forever. But uh, I think that um, this discussion and a lot of the other discussions we've had on this podcast shows that though Trump is definitely, uh, hopefully not going to be there forever and uh, is certainly not all of America, there is a kind of there is a secular shift going on in, in, in the US and after the end of the Cold War, the relationship with Europe and America has naturally changed with America gradually shifting its focus away from Europe towards the Pacific and seeing Europe as largely kind of fixed and slightly different interests in a lot of different regions. And the Iran discussion we had now is maybe a, a very good illustration uh, of that. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have, please tell all of your friends about it by writing about it on our Facebook uh, page or on yours, tweeting about it. And above all, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Ellie Guerin-Meyer, Ruth Citrin, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbroich, and our editor is Pauline Goemin. <laughs>